You're listening to the Philip Robertson Property Podcast. And welcome everyone to episode 14 of Let's Talk Mental Health in the finance world. And this is, of course, is the Philip Robertson Property Podcast. And we are doing something a little different today down here in Melbourne, or as I affectionately call it, COVID County. We are doing it from my home. So if you're getting any background noise, my apologies for that, but we are absolutely committed to bringing the podcast to you. And uh, normally I'd be in the studio. So without further ado, let's get into it. So today my guest is a man who it would be suffice to say wears many, many hats. He is what I would refer to as, and I don't want to make him sound old, an industry veteran in his 42nd, you heard me right, 42nd year in the banking and finance industry. He's the managing director of the FBAA, which is the Finance Brokers Association of Australia. He's the chairman of the Global Board of Governors for the IMBF, not not the International Monetary Fund, but it's the International Mortgage Brokers Federation, the executive chairman and co-founder of the Sanity Space Foundation. We'll learn more about that. He is an advisory board member of the Small Business Association of Australia. Very topical, I would have thought at the moment. And was made a member of the Order of Australia in the Queen's 2019 birthday honours list for his significance in the finance sector and the community. Welcome, Peter White. Thanks, Philip. Uh, yeah, you are making me sound old. You're actually starting to make me feel a little tired with all that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> It was a long one. I tell you, you've got such a bloody long list of achievements, so congratulations, <laughs> firstly, for that. Thanks, <laughs> I've got to, I've got to ask you, Peter, straight off the bat, 42 years in the finance space, my goodness. I mean, I'm, I lasted 18 and it just about destroyed me. So it does <laughs> seem like a long time, but I wonder, does it feel like it was just yesterday when it all began? Yeah, look, it's actually, that's bang on because, it, you know, I reflect back and it, it has been a long time. Um, but at the same token, time has passed so fast. It's, it does seem a little bit like it was yesterday. Um, although if I try and think about what I was doing 42 years ago, I'm going to struggle to remember that. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it has We're been... We're all a, better looking back then, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, certainly don't have the grey hair I've got today. Um well, you're lucky to have grey hair. Let me tell you, I have none. Uh, well, it's, it's probably a, a better look. Anyhow, we'll work on that another day. It's um, low maintenance. But it's been, it, it has Let been me... an, an interesting journey. And, you know, and, and I think we all experience as the older we get, the quicker time seems to pass. But uh, it certainly doesn't feel like 42 years, that's for sure. So where did you start? And secondly, why did you get into the finance industry? <laughs> well, I started in mainstream banking in the late 70s. And basically what happened uh, when I started what was then fifth form in high school, that's what they call it these days, year 11 or whatever it is, yeah, um, I, became, I became very ill with glandular fever. And uh, that was in the February, so school had only just gone back. And uh, I didn't recover until August. And my uh, medical um, doctor at the time said to me, well, you actually need to spend a little bit of time recuperating, so you better go away and do that for a couple of months. So I did that. I went up to my uncle and aunt's property uh, 
up northern New South Wales and spent, I think, four or five weeks there, came back and said, geez, there's no way I'm picking up you know, what is nearly 10, 11 months of schooling. So bugger this, I'm going into the workforce. And uh, uh, I applied for really only one job, and that was in uh, mainstream banking in Commonwealth Bank, actually. And uh, got the job and uh, that was the, the launch pad of my career. And although today in the, uh, the, the public world, I'm a little bit cynical towards banks, um, it was the greatest foundation for, for where I've wound up today, not thinking that I'd be doing anything like this. Um, this was never my career path to be doing uh, those things that I do today. But um, uh, that's how I got into it, almost basically by default, because I needed a job after being a high school dropout. Well, I reckon that's a pretty common story, I think, of the, of the era, that a lot of people would go into, say, retail banking and do the apprenticeship, and it's amazing where hmm. you end up. And I remember I worked on the stock market in the 1980s, actually it was 87. I'll never forget a fellow said to me, son, it doesn't matter where you start, to where you finish that matters. And I thought yeah, that true. was really sage advice for, for a yeah. young, young fella. So, Peter, in that time, in your 42-odd years, I don't want to keep reminding you of that, but you would have <laughs> definitely seen a lot of changes in the industry. What would you what would you recall, let's say, putting you on the spot here, would mm. have been some of your highlights in the industry so far for you personally? Um, well, it has been interesting. I'll, I'll come to the absolute highlights in a sec, but you know, when you look back, say, you've been in the industry for a while, I remember when we put in the first automatic terminals in bank walls and the first FBOS machines were released. And I was even in the banking system when the bank first started digital computers through Olivetti for the terminals in the telling areas. Otherwise, it was all hand-posted ledgers. So a pass, a paper passbook, and you rubber stamped it and wrote in it with a pen. Um, <laughs> so you've just maybe stopped to reflect on that. Um, and at the time, they were big highlights with some of those changes. And you certainly weren't allowed to use a calculator. All the maths had to be done in your head. Unbelievable. Um, but, <laughs> but since then, I think, um, I think one of the great highlights, as I see it from today, is the, the work I've been able to achieve in a political level through government and so on. And uh, I was down in Canberra last week. I have a security pass to Parliament House and it comes up for renewal every three years. And it's a, it's one of those things, don't let it lapse because you may not get it back again. So I had to do, run the gauntlet of border closures down to Canberra back to make sure that got renewed in time before it uh, uh, Queensland closed the borders because I'm based up in Queensland these days. But that interaction with um, our uh, leaders of government is very, very important and in what we do. And, and to me is a, a great highlight of my career because it, it was one of those completely unintended and unexpected, uh, un, uh, unexpected consequences of the journey of my career to actually be talking to, whether it's um, Scott Morrison or Josh Frydenberg, as I was last week. Uh, um, I'm on a call later today with Ed Sazelja. He's basically, I guess, number two in the, the, the political sphere within Treasury under Josh Frydenberg. Um, people like that. I've met some really, really interesting characters, some really lovely people, and some others that uh, you make sure the ring's left on your finger afterwards. <laughs> well, I, um, that's interesting. I mean, I've, I've met Josh, and I met, met him prior to the election, just, he happens to actually live in my local electorate down here in Melbourne. Yeah. And I, I would say, what a really, really nice guy. And that's, yeah. yeah, so you're right. But it takes all, all kinds, doesn't it? 
Oh, it does. And, and quite often I've found anyhow, the camera doesn't play a fair game with really who the people are. So I, I'll, I'll recall this, you know, and hopefully he never hears it, but when I first met um, uh, past Prime Minister, don't you hate it when names failure at the time, <laughs> um, leader of the uh, Liberal Party in the past from Northern John Beaches Hill. in... The, no, after, no, after John, recently, um, big ears. Now, he's made a big impression on me, hasn't he? Um, oh... Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott, thank you very much. Goodness knows why I couldn't find that. Um, whenever I saw Tony on camera, um, I thought, this guy's a babbling idiot. He can't get two words out. Yet when you sat and spoke to him one-on-one, -on -one, I can understand why he was the leader of the party, most intelligent man, great conversations. Um, you know, so I've always sort of, it's always interested me when you, you, know, you, you get an impression of someone through a screen, but when you actually meet them, it can really change that um, perception of them. Tony Abbott was certainly, in my experience, one of those. And John Howard was just, just a, you know, a legend of his time, I guess. And we've had some great political leaders, the Bob Hawks of this world and so on. I think we're kind of lacking that a little bit at the moment, but uh, that's probably another conversation for another day. Well, I think we could spend hours on that. And I think one of the things in a previous podcast episode uh, when I interviewed uh, Terry Ryder, who's a regular guest here at the Philip Robertson Property Podcast, Peter, is we talk about the war on media misinformation. Hmm. And the media polarises our politicians as it does uh, all people when they come to running stories. They, they frame something, but it, as you've just correctly pointed out, it doesn't necessarily tell us who that person is behind the, you know, away hmm. from the camera. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what, what do you think are some of the, uh, well, the, some of the lowlights, and I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to shine the spotlight, spotlight on the, uh, the uh, Royal Commission, but I mean, that's possibly one of them. Yeah, but there's... yeah I think, it, it, and, and that said, it, it probably is the lowlight. I, I, you know, I, I speak, as you're probably aware, around, well, uh, I do digitally these days, used to be face-to-face -face around the country all the time, and you know, reflect back on, you know, when we had them was recessions. And we always thought a recession was in the, you know, 70s and 80s and into the 90s as such, that they were always a, a really bad thing. And then the uh, GFC hit and that was a disaster. And uh, then we came across this uh, Royal Commission. And as we're coming out the back end of that, we've hit bushfires and volcanoes blowing up islands and obviously coronavirus where we sit today. So it's, it's I think coronavirus has been an interesting challenge, but the actual Royal Commission itself was something that from our industry sector, so I'm being very, very narrow focused in this comment that looking at it from a, a finance and mortgage broker's point of view, was a conversation we should never have been poured into. And the examples that we used were in the Royal Commission uh, were not examples of what the entire industry is like. So is that there were there were people bought in front of the Royal Commission who were termed as mortgage brokers and they were a version of a mortgage broker. They weren't the atypical. And uh, and even then, and not belittling any of the issues that were identified through the Royal Commission. Yeah, you know, they, they pick out and say, well, you know, you've had twenty-four serious cases. And that's right, there were, you know, something like twenty-four or twenty-nine, I can't remember the exact number today, of extremely serious cases that needed to be dealt with and showed a very serious breach of uh, regulations and conduct. And there was no argument of that. But that group had already had also settled in its time some three hundred and fifty thousand mortgages. So when you look at it as a percentage weighting of total business written, um, they do a damn good job 
and they do a job that is, is astounding for our country. And unfortunately, there are some rodents in the game that will screw up and make, you know, will make the headlines. Um, and they're the people we all want out of the industry. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. So but, you sort of get yeah. tarred with the wrong brush in these things. And still today we fight it. Uh, we've had uh, House of Representatives um, inquiry from the, their uh, Senate Economics Committee. And, uh, you know, even then we've got, you know, part of the, the uh, committee sort of going, yeah, well, you know, Royal Commission got it wrong. And the other half trying to dig in further as if there is something systemically evil happening within this sector. And there quite simply isn't. I mean, I'm well known for calling it how it is. So if something's garbage, if something's bullshit, I'm going to call it. Um, but if it's right and fair play, it is right and fair play. And uh, it's the same with the consumer advocates. I'm, I've been well uh, editorialised on my comments about uh, the... Uh, uh, the choice as far as their uh, reviews of industry and I, I was saying to my wife this morning actually I saw they did another review on soap powders and I said there is their expertise and skills they do a great job of that keep reviewing soap powders but don't talk about mortgage breaking she's got no idea what you're talking about uh, well, <laughs> it's it's interesting what you see coming out of the market I think that's a really great point you just made there, Peter. And again, I go back to that episode, Terry Ryder and I continually talk about these so-called experts that get called on to talk about property. And they are often economists that know nothing about property or mm. they refer to the Australian property market because of what's happening in Sydney and Melbourne. But mm. Australian property market, for example, is made up of thousands of individual markets. Yeah. You just get ridiculous people or, or at least saying things that are just not appropriate. And they're yeah. so-called, just because they're in the media, they're, they're thought of as, well, they're meant to be the expert. And it's just mm. it's just bollocks. Yeah. I'm really glad that you've, uh, you know, you've been so open with your, with your thoughts because I think it's like in any, any industry. What, what is the agenda behind it? So what are they really trying to look for, these red herrings? There's mm. always going to be some that, that make it it's like when we used to for example you'd go to the footy and you could have a beer and you could and you could have full strength beer and it's always the few that might throw a few cans and do a few silly things and they're the ones that make it uh, ruin it for everybody else or, mm. which is probably 99.9 percent .9 of the world doing the right thing and no difference in finance and banking i would have thought Hmm. Every, and, and it's it'd be fair to say, Peter, it's a very, very highly regulated industry these days, and there's a lot of professionalism, expectation, a huge amount of onus of of ongoing learning f uh, put onto the brokers these days. It's just so different from when I was a broker, some uh, back in when I started in two thousand and one. Very different industry now. I, I'd like to ask you the following: Yeah, what yeah. are some? It is, of the it's changed a lot. Yeah, it has. Absolutely. What are some of the things, this is a personal question, that you think you would have done differently if you had your time over again? Um, it is an interesting question to ponder. And I must admit, the, the first things that come to my mind actually sound very cliche um, because there's almost nothing I'd change because I've looked at everything as a learning curve. Because I, I yeah, bailed I out it. of high school yep. and when I jumped into banking, um, I basically took the approach as the only one I'm going to learn is to get in the deep end, try things and make mistakes. And I have made a shitload of mistakes over my time. Uh, but they are the things that I've had the greatest learnings from and been able to, if you like, go from strength to strength, if that's the right way to call it, um, throughout my career by not being scared to do something I don't know. 
and being prepared to learn about it and not not being um, reckless or careless in in doing those things but not being you know not being uh, shy or bashful in, in, in trying to, to jump in at the deep end of that pool and um, the question is whether or not I would do things differently people might look at my personal life and say why do you should have done a lot of things differently because I have had one or two marriages or some more um, <laughs> but um, yeah maybe that's where I should look at doing things differently although I've, I've changed that these days um, but from my career I, I I don't think so because everything I have done and experienced has benefited me to where I have landed and what I do today yeah, it's going to be very uh, difficult to change anything and I think that's a, a, a beautiful point you make, and that is about attitude. It's, it's your perception of how you interpret what has happened. When it's lessons, it's all about, call it the rich tapestry of life, but it's made you who you mm. are today as the man you are, leading, let's face it, your, your sector of the broker community. And all those experiences give you great experience in relation to partly uh, uh, your uh, marriages for example i mean you're not robinson crusoe there there'd be plenty of us <laughs> me, myself included that have been through i've only had yeah. the one divorce so far but um only i'm only 53 and i'm young and still having a crack at it but these are all part of the things that happen to, to mortgage brokers aren't they that's part of yeah. being a mortgage broker if you're going to be in the game there's every chance that you're going to have some of your things suffer and that is home life because of the long hours you're expected to work putting deals together mm -hmm. or seeing clients after hours yeah yeah it, it is one of those things that um, puts a lot of strain on relationships um, and if you are career driven and focused you, you tend to become literally very focused or driven on where you're going um, and sometimes that means that other things get left to one side that probably should have greater attention paid to them and uh, eventually they uh, they fracture and break but yeah. um, that's another part of life's journey though absolutely that doesn't happen to everyone yeah that well exactly and <laughs> um, it's about having a rich life and and i think sometimes when i used to look as a broker at some of the people writing huge amounts of business, I'd often think to myself, gosh, what's the cost to them? Sure, mm. they're making a lot of money, Peter, potentially, or mm. a good income, but there is a cost to that. Something's got to give, and often it was family life, it was balance. Yeah. So you've got to look at the total picture. What I'd like to ask you now for our audience today, Peter, is what do you see at the moment as the biggest challenges today for the finance and banking industry? Um, I guess looking at it from a, a broker perspective rather than the banking perspective yeah. um, is uh, their compliance obligations, obviously at the back end of the Royal Commission and assets review into remunerations and all those things that we've been through over the last couple of years um, and where they've all landed today means that you know the next 12 months as they start 2021, their compliance obligations uh, take a significant step up not in as far as what they do but how they manage and record it because in principle everything that's been um, motioned forward off the back end of the Royal Commission is really stuff that brokers do um, and uh, it's really then a matter of well how good is the administrative uh, uh, documentation and recording of all these activities and that's probably the, the downfall you know in principle that's how things practice in practice played out but in, uh, in theory and administration, they, uh, you know, they need to get better paperwork put together and they need to really focus in on that on uh, several different fronts and understand the interplay of new uh, legislation that's been passed 
uh, understanding how that works throughout their practical life uh, when they're interviewing clients. And that's uh, a bit of a change uh, in, in, in what they're doing in as far as how they're doing it administratively. And I'm saying this cautiously because I don't want people to think that you know, brokers have been you know, bad and their whole world's changing and everything they do is completely different to get it right. That's actually not the case. What it is, is they've always done the vast majority of these things, if not all of them, but their documentation's been poor on how they report on that activity. So that things they need to do to ensure that they meet the obligations under the new, uh, the new legislation, the new laws that have come down post-Royal Commission. And of course, one of those is the best interest duty. And uh, we could talk about that for a few hours, but uh, we won't. But in principle, brokers have always acted with the best interest of their client. Um, now they've got to make sure they've got the documentation right to prove it which they didn't do in the past. So yeah, that's yeah, just an example a, of it. I think that's a great point. And I think with brokers, uh, they are certainly being forced uh, to act much more, or at least be seen to be acting more responsibly. And, and, and there's no doubt, I think the vast majority have always done that. Perhaps mm. one thing a lot of people don't know in the general public and some of our listeners is that uh, you and I would both know is that brokers are actually audited. So their files are audited by their aggregator or if they've got a credit license, ASIC can investigate and call to look at any of their files. So there is a huge amount of responsibility to be a broker in making sure that their paperwork, their files, they keep great records of all their notes of conversations yeah. with clients. So this is a highly professional regulated industry, I think. Yeah, most certainly. And, and a lot of that auditing is proactively done, not reactive. So if ASIC comes banging on your door, that's a, a reactive position. Um, but aggregators, who are the umbrellas that sit across the top of uh, just about all brokers in Australia, all have proactive undertakings to audit brokers' files. And a lot of cases, you know, they're, they're done on every file in some instances, especially if you're new to the industry. And then it's a, it's a constant ongoing weekly and uh, monthly exercise in auditing loan files to make sure everything's right. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it is, it's a, it's a very, very professional industry and uh, um, it is monitored very, very closely. And that's just from the aggregators, let alone what we do from a, an association point of view and all the other things that happen around their world as far as the monitoring, because the lenders do auditing as well. Uh, it's a, an ongoing exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And because, of course, brokers have had the fact find, responsible lending. Mm. And the, the new one is the bid, the best interest. Uh, mm. talk, talk. Can you just briefly give us an overview of what that uh, is? Because that's just, sure. as I understand, just coming in right now. Yeah, so what happened, that, that legislation's all been passed. It was due to implement from 1 July, but because of COVID, it was pushed back to 1 January 2021 before its actual implementation. And uh, look, in, in a very short and simple way, best interest duty is all about the broker putting the interests of the customer in front of their own interests. So, um, you know, it's it means that it's not driven by remuneration, what they earn out of a deal. Um, it's not driven by um, favours to a specific lender because they give you bonuses because they've all gone. Um, there's no external influence sitting around anything other than what's in the best interest of the client. So their interests come first. And that's very simply what best interest duty is all about. Uh, there's obviously devil in the details that sits underneath, 
but um, yeah, that's a, a much longer conversation. But that's from a broker's point of view where their obligation and responsibility lies. Together with the pieces you touched on then, we have RG209, which is all around responsible lending obligations. Um, and then we have a thing called DDO, design and distribution obligations. And these th three things bolt together. So your best interest duty is the first piece up front, making sure you put the client's interest in front of yourself. RG209 sits on what's called responsible lending obligations. That's the credit piece, that, the more technical piece that says um, this loan is not unsuitable for the borrower. I mean, it's more than that, but in simple terms. And then DDO, design and distribution obligations, is actually an ASIC enforcement piece back to the lender that makes sure the lender isn't producing garbage products. So the broker needs to know it's past ASIC's DDO obligations along the way. Yeah. Yeah, um, brilliant. And, and really, there's not much more you can do about that because then you know, it's, you've got the world surrounded as such for the borrower uh, and uh, all uh, culminates to being a great outcome for the borrower, which is why over 55% of people use brokers to get their home loan. I personally think it'll reach 70 to 80%. In the UK, it's already over 70%. The originations are through brokers. And, uh, and I think things like best interest duty are a catalyst to take the next steps to where we've grown from. Yeah, absolutely. Peter, right now, more than ever, we are going through what for all of us, I would say, is the biggest challenge to our way of life, to our economy, to our social fabric, to how we live. And it's really, I think, a great segue into our main topic today, which is mental health. What is your read of the mental health situation in the uh, in the finance industry at the moment? Yeah, it's um, it's a mixed bag. But in that mixed bag, the majority are doing pretty good. So um, yeah, around the country, obviously, I think the, the ones that have got the toughest uh, situation at the moment is in Victoria. And I think that's a, pretty much a given, given their circumstances. Um, but yeah, brokers throughout Australia are actually doing really well because they're the ones who are there actually helping the borrowers. Um, the banks are saying, come and talk to us. Um, the brokers are out there proactively saying, how can I help you? How are you going? Um, and uh, so the industry is actually in a, a pretty good shape at the moment, uh, except, you know, when you look at Victoria now, it's, it's a bit like going back to that March-April period when we all sort of were in lockdown right across the country. People are trying to re-grip and re-understand as to what they can and can't do. Can I go to my office? I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go to my office and work. Well, actually, no, you can't. If you can work from home, you need to work from home. And if it's more than five days, you can't do it anyhow. Uh, and it's some of the grappling with some of those basic concepts, some, it becomes a bit of a, a challenge mentally because you're so used to doing something else. Um, and it, it, it's almost like there's, um, it, it doesn't make sense. There's no logic to me not being able to go to my office, for example. Not that they're going to see anyone. They're just going to work on the computer. Well, you need to pack that up and take it home. Um, and uh, you know, it has, in some cases, um, pushed people into bouts of depressions and anxieties. And uh, we've been talking through that with various people around the country. And we also uh, very much proactively ring, uh, specifically at the moment, all of our uh, people down in uh, Melbourne to, as much as we can. We've got thousands and thousands of members down there, so it's a lot of phone calls to make over a fair bit of time. But uh, we're out there reaching out to them and uh, making sure they're travelling OK. And most people are, but it's, a, it's always one of those things that, um, and Philip, you know, as, as well as I do, when it comes to mental health, uh, it's the unseen that's the greatest challenge and it's the unseen that's the hardest thing to see because that's where the dark hole is starting to appear and nobody knows about it. 
Whereas if people are in conversation, which is a part of what we do from a mental health advocacy position is ensure we keep conversations going on many, many different levels um, to keep people engaged. Because I know that you know, from my personal experience and my journey, uh, what we've done with the association, what I do through my charity, is all revolving around those conversations because the more connected we can stay with people, the more we can keep people in that conversation, the greater help and benefit we can be to them when they're dealing with uh, dark challenges in their lives and the more open they are to talk to someone about it. It's, it can never be just a one-off casual conversation because the trust isn't there. And that's one of the big things with mental health is actually trusting the person who you're talking with. And that takes time to build and, build, and that's why we've been doing this for a long time. Um, it helps us keep those connections right. And uh, generally speaking, uh, yeah, things are going okay. But there's some definitely some challenges out there and we're working with those people as the as they open up to us about it through our, just our normal conversations. Yeah, I think that's fantastic that you're very much aware uh, and you're making it part of the mainstream conversation. I wasn't aware that the uh, your group, particularly I'm assuming it's through the FBAA, FBAA uh, picking up the phone, Peter, and reaching out to its members and, and hats off to, to your team for doing that. I think that's just absolutely brilliant. And you're correct, It's most people are doing a-okay but there are going to be those people that are going to fall through the cracks. And that's what our goal, I would have thought, and it's part of the, really the reason for having you as a guest, Peter, is to really be able to reach out to people across the industry and continue these conversations and, and, and make them, I think, front of mind that it is, it's acceptable that we need yeah. to be having yeah. these ongoing conversations. Uh, what, what we always say, we try and normalise it. So it's a normal conversation. It's not... Oh, oh, yeah, somebody's talking to me about my mental health. No, you don't come from that position anyhow. But you just normalise the communication with people. And uh, when they or when you have earned their trust and they feel comfortable to trust you with that conversation, they'll have it. Um, and also looking for signs that uh, you know, people may not be uh, um, sitting as high on the happy scale as, as maybe they uh, or maybe we, you know, would be good for them. And you know, it's always the goal to keep everyone down that happy end of the stick and because uh, once you fall into the hole at the other end, that's when things get fairly dark and challenging. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, I was just going to say no. you can sneak, sneak up on people and you, you're just feeling a little bit off and you, you're kind of like not quite sure why and uh, you're absolutely right. I'm going to ask, yeah. are you, I remember when I was a broker. And I'm going to touch on Are You OK Day. And I remember being at uh, Docklands for a function and you were talking about Are You OK Day. I know that's something that you've been very much instrumental in. T can you tell our audience about your involvement with Are You OK Day? Yeah, sure. So what happened back in about 2015, I, um, I had actually probably started a year or so before that, but I had uh, very senior corporate colleagues of mine who were dear friends and uh, they were struggling with depression and uh, we threw, uh, personally threw out a bit of a lifeline and, and this person still today thanks us for basically you know, helping him from not committing suicide. Um, he was in a really dark place. And the more we looked at it, the more I saw it happening. I saw brokers that were dealing with anxieties, depressions. My, uh, uh, my wife suffers from depression. My um, stepdaughter is special needs, which is why my charity exists today. But... Um, the pressures on a, a family, and especially on a mum uh, with special needs children, is uh, 
almost in, uh, intolerable. It's, it's an enormous pressure that never, ever stops, 24-7 for your entire life. And, uh, you know, as, as kids get older, challenges become greater as well. But we, we could see what was happening personally. We could see what was happening with our close circle of friends. Um, and I could see it in the broader marketplace. And whilst all this was happening, I was then starting to get conversations back through um, aggregators, so the, the, the corporate umbrella groups over brokers saying, oh, you know, this person's lost his accreditation because he's suffering with depression at the moment. I said, what? I said, what bullshit's that? You know, the person's not well. This is, this is you know, the person's not well. How can you lose your accreditation and, uh, uh, for particular lenders? And I said, no, this has to stop. So uh, at the beginning of 2016, I took a stance on behalf of the entire industry. So most of the stuff I do, because I've been in the industry so long, I don't do it as a, this is an FBAA only thing. I do everything I touch is for the entire industry. Obviously our members get a, a closer benefit for whatever reason that is, but it's an industry initiative. And I took on the uh, industry ambassador awareness uh, position uh, in regards to mental health, because I needed to ensure that these conversations became normalised and weren't considered something that people should be penalised by, so losing your accreditation with a lender, just because you're suffering with depression. And uh, I just, everywhere I spoke, and uh, as a bit of framing for this, normally, outside of COVID, um, and probably the new world's going to be different, but uh, for about the last six years, Every year, I do somewhere around 220 domestic flights and about a handful of international flights, and 90% of my travel is based around speaking engagements all around the country, all the time, multiple times a week, uh, multiple states in each week. Yeah, I've done breakfast, lunch, and dinner in three different states because of what my speaking engagements were. Um, so it's pretty intense, but everywhere I go, a part of every presentation I give, there is a portion of it always dedicated to awareness of mental health uh, and talking about the struggles that people are having to normalise that conversation. And today, after those five, six years of doing this now, um, we, and back then we got involved with, uh, with um, Are You OK Day because that was the first sort of mental health presence and we created a, a, an event that we did around that and we've been doing it every year since. But we've also then brought in Beyond Blue, again, talking about, you know, Are You OK is about if, in my words, um, normalising the conversation. If things get dark, Beyond Blue is the, the people who help get you out of that hole as such. So we um, sort of try and cover all that. In the meantime, we speak uh, widely uh, everywhere we can about what this journey is like to make sure that conversation is normalised. And today in our industry, mortgage broking, it's a normal conversation. There are many people doing lots of different things reflecting on mental health. And I am very proud and honoured to be able to say, well, we started that conversation. We made this thing normal. And today it's normal across the industry. Uh, we have you know, people who wind up in hospitals suffering from depression and people who are around them come together and look after their business for them. So make sure the business doesn't collapse whilst they're trying to get their health back together. And, um, and uh, you know, and then when they are well, they uh, can then get back into business and keep going again. And uh, things haven't collapsed around them because a part of the, the pressures and stress in everybody's life is their finances. So, uh, you know, it could start with anxieties and things are a bit tough and wind up in depression and the whole thing just snowballs and collapses. So, you know, a part of that is helping them make sure that their financial positions remain stable as well. And... Uh, 
that just enables them to keep on their journey. I think that's fantastic. It, it really reminds me of Aussie mateship. You know, you're there for your brothers. You're there to, hey, we've got your back. The industry's got your back. And yeah. you should be proud of that, Peter. I'm absolutely proud to actually have you as my guest. I'm just loving what I'm hearing, mate. But really, I mean that very sincerely. I wanted Thanks, to uh, ask you about something that's really dear to your heart. You mentioned about special needs. You, you've got a ch child of special needs. You created the Sanity Space Foundation. Mm. Tell me why you started it. What's your mission? So... Yeah, we started that because of uh, the impact that I saw with my wife. So, um, so Janet and I have been together 10 years. Uh, this year we've been married five. Um, her eldest daughter is 13, uh, suffers from dyspraxia, uh, which is an intellectual impairment. And, uh, you know, the, the pressure on her um, was significant. And, and you... She can never look after herself, this child, and, and she goes to a special needs school. And you go to the school and you look around and go, my God, we thought we had problems. Um, there's some real challenges in these people's lives. And we know what we go through with what we're dealing with. And I'm, I'm not trying to um, distance the, the conversation, but just, you know, our lives are pretty full on with managing Charlie. Um, yet these other people have even greater complexities with their children. So they, I could just imagine what they go through. And uh, so we set up, again, because we're, I was doing all this other stuff for industry uh, about normalising conversations, we set up the sanity space to be able to um, share and to, or to, to have that conversation with people who were parents of special needs children. And it's targeted specifically at the parents, not the kids, because the kids generally get huge amounts of things done for them or available to them. And most people forget about the parents. And we see it as parents, as how forgotten you get about in this conversation. And so what we wanted to do, and it, its mission was to have a, a, a normal and open conversation that sometimes gets a little bit edgy. Uh, and we do that through closed groups because one of the great things you need to be able to do is to vent every now and then because life gets really shitty and hard when you're a parent of special needs kids. Enormously frustrating. You know, my wife should be a jippy mate she can repair holes in the wall like an expert because charlotte likes to belt the crap out of stuff um you know, we not only deal with the self-harming issue but yeah you know, it's it's holes in walls and goodness knows what and it's all that goes around that with the anger and and that these kids uh, uh can't control and all that sort of stuff and uh, what we want to say to people is look we are one of the few people that get it so when it comes to challenges with mental health, with conversations with parents, special needs kids, they very rarely will tell anyone what their lives are like. I tend to speak more about it than just about anyone I know who's, who's a parent of a special needs child because I'm trying to normalise that conversation. It is a really significant challenge that these parents go through and you need to be able to converse, get it off your chest because if you don't get that off your chest, it could fester into something that it should never go to. And uh, I remember I sat in, um, I was actually at a, a meeting with a couple of two very senior politicians and so that we were in Tasmania for whatever reason that this was happening. I was talking a little bit about this over dinner and a text came through from my wife and it was pretty explicit of what she wanted to do to her child. And I said, guys, this is what I'm talking about. This is, this. nothing's going to happen from this, but you've got to be able to vent it. So if you don't vent it, 
then you risk something happening. So you need to normalise, allow the conversation to be normalised. And parents, special needs kids won't do that unless they're talking to somebody who understands. So we just put it out there. We are parents of special needs children. If you look at the website, it, it's one of its opening headlines. We get it because we're parents of special needs kids. So talk to us. Have a conversation with us. You know, I, uh, <laughs> when I travel around, and not so much these days, this was some the other years, but uh, you know, I used to get a, 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 um, a text from Janet and it would say Bunnings and Bunnings was code. And the code meant get a shovel because I'm going to bury the bitch. Because <laughs> she was having a really bad day with Charlotte. But it was just a, a means to release the, the uh, angst that was sitting underneath it. And, I love uh, it. It's the pressure uh, valve, just letting it out. Yeah, and it's got to be allowed to happen because if it doesn't, it bottles up and it will explode at some point in time. And that's the objective of the sanity space is just to talk to parents as the parents are comfortable and willing to talk and to share the hard end of the stick that they're going through with people who are going through it at the same time they are. I think that's what it's about. Hit, yeah, and I think you've hit the nail on the head and beautifully uh, articulated, Peter, is it's meeting people where they're at and for them to say, feel, hey, we're not alone. There's yeah. others that understand us, get our mindset, really are walking in the same shoes as we're walking. Peter, the website, if people want to get in contact with the Sanity Space Foundation, yep. what's the best way to do so? Yeah, it's through the website, the sanityspace.org. Um, so you can do, and it's the at the beginning, so the Sanity Space. You don't put the foundation piece in, but the Sanity Space. And if you go .com.au.org.org.au, we've got all the URLs pointing the same place. You won't It'll miss it. It'll redirect. Uh, <laughs> it'll redirect. Um, and you'll see the logo on there. And the logo was very specific, specifically designed with the oversight of my wife. It's a, a, a figure there with a person with a box that's being lifted up over the top of their head. And that's what the space, sanity space is all about, is helping to remove that box. It's got you in a dark place so you can see a bit of light in the world and uh, come and talk to someone. I think that's mag magnificent. Well done. And Janet, clearly is a very special lady. It takes a, a very special person to, uh, I've got friends with children with special needs and it's it's almost a segue into another area. It's like I've got a buddy of mine whose wife has full-blown dementia and you said it before, it's 24-7. You just, mm. there's no off button, you have no downtime, you live it yep. full on every day of the week, for sure. I appreciate you sharing that with us, Peter. Let me ask you about the industry, and I'm talking about the finance industry, when it comes to the issue of mental health. Mm. And yes, it sounds like the industry is right on top of it, which is amazing and, and great. What is on your wish list? What would you like to see happen? I, And as much as I say the industry you know, does have a good handle on it, it can do a lot more. Um, and I think the industry needs to grow to a point where everyone accepts that this is a, uh, uh, um, uh, a wellness issue. It's, it's, it's a disease. It's not just somebody's had a mental breakdown and it's go, oh, yeah, that's, that's all a bit weird. Um, it's something that can hit us all. It suffers me. Actually, just on the weekend, I had a major anxiety attack on Sunday and I had no idea why. And uh, uh, I had a shocker. And it can hit us from anywhere. And we need to be able to just accept that these things happen and not ridicule or um, put people in um, difficult situations within our industry uh, just because of. And we've still got a fair way to go on that journey. And that means there needs to be broader conversations, continuing conversations 
and uh, making sure that uh, we do achieve that point where there is a, an, a those support mechanisms are there. And I, I think those support mechanisms have got a long way to go. Where you know, as much as we do, we're sort of in our little space, um, you know, with what our conversations are like into the industry. And uh, we are actually looking to increase that with an EAP program, so yep. a support program for brokers. And uh, we'll be uh, evolving that over the coming months because there's always a lot more I think we can do. And EAP, is that an employee assistance program? Is that what the acronym Correct. is? Correct. Yeah, yeah. it okay. is. Yeah, employee assistance program, except we'll change the employee to broker. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it's basically a means to reach out for a counselling program. Um, you know, if they, they need somebody else to talk to and they're, they're in a bad way, that there is an avenue that, that basically we support financially um, for brokers to, to get professional counselling help because it's an area that isn't really catered for. It's all well and good for us to have the conversation and, and, and try and do all that we do. But when things get hard, you say, well, here's a number called Beyond Blue or potentially say, well, look, here's the number you need to ring. This is a professional counsellor that will be there to help you and uh, we've got your back. We've got the cost covered, so don't worry about it. Yeah, that's brilliant. One of the things from a practical strategy I found very helpful, and I'm going to credit my buddies at 100 Words Mate to Mate, that's another men's mm. health group here in Melbourne. One of the things I found very helpful is to create a discussion with a friend by asking this question, how was your day out of 10? Now, the thing about the question is it requires an answer, a number, a score. And whereas mm. if we just ask someone, hey, how are you going? It's so easy for them to brush you off. Yeah, not bad. And that's the end of it. And if they're struggling, that's and they're one of those people, Peter, that possibly could be falling through the cracks, they get away mm. with it. And we've let them off the hook. So if, if you are able to create a safe space for them to share how they're really doing, whereas when you ask the question, hey, how was your day out of 10? You are asking for a numerical response. So even if they say, oh, it was a two or it was a four, you can then ask, well, what was it that made your day a four, for example? Have you ever had an eight? What would that look like for you? You see, as men, I think we're always about problem solvers. We're fixers. We want to fix things. We just need to listen. And if we learn to listen better, that's a great way to actually give someone the, the safety to step into, you know, that, that trusting, step into yeah, that space. It, yeah. and, and that listening piece, to me, is one of the, the critical pieces in that conversation. It's not the actual words you're using. It's, it's listening to what they've got to say. And I think it's a great opener. What's your score like out of 10 for, for the day? And, it's an easy uh, one, isn't it? Yeah. And most of us blokes are going to turn around and, you know, and, and not really want to have the conversation. But in the finance game, it's all about numbers. So you rank it. it out of 1 to 10. It's, it's, a, it's an easy hit, really. It's, um, it's an it, easy hit. It's a free hit. The, yeah. And it creates the opportunity to have a broader discussion and, and to sit down and listen to what they're saying. And that's exactly. generally what people need when they're going into, you know, periods of anxiety or potentially the early levels of, uh, of depression, that really they need a trusted ear they can talk to to get it off that's their exactly uh, right. chest. Peter, it's been an amazing time and I'm very conscious because I know you've got something else coming up very shortly, but I was going to ask you, what does the future hold for Peter White? Where would you like to be in the next five years? Oh, interesting question. Um, so... I, uh, my work within the FBAA and industry doesn't change, although I do believe that uh, where we're going, once we get out of COVID, because that slowed things down a bit, but the work I do internationally 
is a great passion of mine and something that is evolving. So we have um, five or six countries technically involved with the IMBF, the Federation. And uh, it's a very important conversation when we're talking to regulators here in Australia to be able to talk to what's happening in the UK or the US or in Canada or wherever it may be in the Netherlands, um, because governments constantly reach out to other countries to shape regulation here in this country, over here in Australia. So they're, they're looking at cross-border experiences. And if we're going to stay ahead of the game on our conversations, we need to know what's happening over there in advance. So what I do internationally, um, not just from a, a speaking point of view, but also uh, from a, a research and a regulatory point of view is very, very important to what plays back into here. So I see there's a lot more of that uh, going on. And there's a few other plans in the, the mental health space that we're finalising at the moment that uh, I'll launch uh, before the end of this year that uh, will be a, an expansion of the work we've already done. It's just not the EAP piece. There's another piece out the side of that. Um, and uh, uh, there'll be some exciting times over the next couple of years, that's for sure. Brilliant. My final question, Peter. Hmm. What would you like to say to our listeners, many of whom are from the finance industry when it comes to their mental health? What message would you like to leave with them? I, I guess the message would be is, is some of the things that I've been speaking around is find someone you trust and it's, it is about trust and be prepared and, and be open to talk to them about what you're going through. Don't try and hold it inside and bottle it up. Find a mate, find someone that you trust and uh, and just speak to them. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a mental health conversation. Uh, this is all about your overall wellness. but. When you've got somebody you can just sit down and openly talk with, other things will evolve in that conversation and will help you get through whatever it is you're trying to get through at the time. But the worst thing you can do is to bottle it up, talk to no one, and uh, sit behind your desk and pretend it's not real because that is a disaster. Yeah, I completely agree. Peter, It's it's been a pleasure. The time's gone too quick. I reckon we could have uh, natted on for hours on uh, this really important topic that it's passionate to you and means the world to me as well. So I want to say thank you on behalf of uh, the uh, Philip Robertson Property Podcast, but all the people across Australia, the work that you've done, the work that you continue to do, the work that you will be doing. You've been an absolute champ and I'm, I'm so grateful for you to uh, give, give of your time uh, to people, not only in the industry, but uh, across across uh, Australia. It's just been amazing. So thank you, Peter. Uh -huh. Absolutely. My absolute pleasure, Philip. Thank you. It's been great. So, uh, friends, uh, that's uh, that's it for today. I'm not going to announce who my guest is next week. Why? Well, I've got to say we're trying to work through and navigate all the issues around uh, getting uh, speakers sorted out, more around actually the, the technology side. It's been a bit of a challenge. So uh, I'm hoping to have Bernard Desmond, but uh, that's uh, to be confirmed purely about getting a, a microphone and uh, getting deliveries here in Melbourne at the moment is not an easy thing friends i would ask this of you please can you like the podcast can you share it can you leave a comment and in the meantime all of you please stay safe be well uh, make sure you're checking in with people and i always ask the question how was your day out of 10 take care everybody and we look forward to uh, bringing our next podcast uh, within the next few days i reckon it will be next week in the meantime take care and this is phil robertson with peter white saying thanks for today